You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. All right, early service. You guys may be a little bit tired, but you are serious about Jesus. Far more than the 11 o'clock. Don't tell them I said that. I'm going to say that to them, too. <laughs> okay, so welcome to our Easter service. Today is the day that we uh, intentionally join with saints all over the globe to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that following the crucifixion on Friday, that Jesus truly, indeed, did raise from the grave on the third day, and conquering sin and conquering death and conquering Satan and bringing life and freedom to all those who believe. Today, we have a great reason to celebrate. Amen? Now, really, the resurrection is key to um, understanding Christianity. The church stands or falls on the truth and the embrace of the historic, uh, powerful, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it means for us. If you remove the resurrection, Christianity no longer exists. I mean, if you take this part out of the story, there is no reason for faith. As the Apostle Paul will actually go on to write later on in this letter to the Corinthians, he says, if the resurrection never occurred, then let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If the resurrection never occurred, you should not be here (laughs) You should be barbecuing or pre-gaming or something because tomorrow we die. So live it up right now. But in fact, we do believe that Christ has conquered the grave. And that means something significant for us. And today what we're going to be doing is we're looking at what Jesus' resurrection means for our eternity. Now, we don't commonly talk about eternity. Eternity doesn't show up in our everyday conversations yeah, we'll mention it when we gather the church because that's what you're supposed to do. And we'll, 
in our conversations, we'll allude to, once in a while to some sort of general, vague idea of heaven or the afterlife or upstairs or something along those lines from time to time. But for many of us, eternity is rarely on the forefront of our minds. And so for this reason, we are, we're not experiencing the way that eternity profoundly shapes the way that we live today. In other words, we're not living into the depth of hope that God intends for us to live out of. In fact, as Paul Tripp, an author, put it, many of us suffer from eternal amnesia, meaning that we, we get so focused on the opportunities and the responsibilities and the needs and the desires and all the things of the here and now that we lose sight of what's to come. I, I would imagine that many people here this morning claim to believe in forever, and yet for many of us, we function as if this is all there is. We believe it theoretically, we believe it theologically, but functionally, we function as, the, as this life is all there is. Now, as we discuss this idea of eternity today, I'm, I'm making an assumption, and I'm going to be honest, it's a huge assumption. And the assumption is that every single person here this morning, every single person deep down has the nagging sense that this life is not all that there is. That no one here is completely satisfied with the way things are going. No one here is completely satisfied with the prospect of their lives. No one here feels like they have arrived. And for all of us, in some way, we are all hoping that there's something more than what we simply see and what we simply experience on an everyday basis. And there's good reason why I believe that. It's not just speculation. The Bible actually tells us this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He, speaking of God, has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, we have this idea, we have this vision, we have this longing of eternity written into us regardless of who we are, and yet we can't make sense of it on our own. We've got this like eternity-sized void that we don't know what to do with, so we just continue to fill it with stuff, and the more stuff that we try to fill it with, the more dissatisfied we are. Eternity is written into our hearts. Now, I recently watched a, a biographical documentary on a man named Billy Graham, which I assume many people here are familiar with, uh, but if you're not, Billy Graham was a famous evangelist from the 20th century. And in this documentary, scene after scene showed these pictures and these videos of masses of people coming to hear a very simple gospel message. Thousands upon thousands of people would pour into stadiums and pour into to streets. And I thought to myself as I'm watching this, what compelled so many people? And at times, in these like really sophisticated cities, to come to listen to a southern preacher, a simple southern preacher. Now, I don't intend to undermine the work of God. I really do believe that the Spirit of God was at work. But what I wanted to understand was, what was the historical context of this? What was fueling people's hunger for the message of Jesus? What was going on at the time? And a very significant factor was the pressures of the Cold War that spanned really from the end of the World War II all the way up to like 1990, a majority of the 20th century. And for, for decades, the nation lived in this constant, ongoing 
threat and fear of communist uh, invasion. Uh, for, 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 for many people, any day could bring invasion from any direction. In fact, my mom uh, grew up on a property here on the West Coast that had a bomb shelter on the property. That was just what you did. That was just the fear that was looming over decades of life. In fact, it's interesting that some of Graham's most famous crusades or revivals, that's kind of an unfortunate term, but revivals uh, occurred at the very same time that there were Public, there was public panic about uh, these things called hell bombs or hydrogen bombs. People were being brought face to face with their mortality. Uh, unlike our generations today, they were, they were mindful of eternity. They, they were asking like really big questions like, what happens when I die? Is there any hope beyond the grave? Listen to this, this question that one, one author poses. Is death the end, or is there something more? Is death the end, or is there something more? He goes on to say this. This is the ultimate question. It's been the defining issue for entire centuries, from the ancient Egyptians to the present. And in truth, there is no more important question that any of us will face. It is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. And he says, if you have doubts about this, its significance, go to a hospital or go to a funeral. Or he says, talk to a parent who has recently lost a child and you will soon discover that the apparent normalcy, he says, the apparent normalcy of everyday life is a sham. This like status quo thing that we're just keeping up, it's a sham. And he says, death is a wrecking ball that destroys everything. Death is a wrecking ball that just destroys everything. Now, we, we may not all agree upon how death came into this whole human experience. For, for many people, uh, death is just the sort of natural progression for humanity that you, you live and then you die and then you sort of just succumb to it. It's sort of the circle of life. Death is just a natural part of our existence. But the Bible actually tells us that death is the fallout of sin. Death is the result of sin breaking our humanity, and death is actually an enemy that God intends to defeat on our behalf. But the one thing that we're all going to agree on this morning, and I'm, pretty, I'm fairly confident that we're all going to agree on this morning, that no one in the right mind is going to walk away doubting, is that we will all eventually face death. The odds are against us. Now, you may not believe in the resurrection, You may choose to suppress that that nagging feeling that there is an eternity, but on this point, we're all going to agree. Life and death is a reality that we must all eventually face, and the question is, how are you going to face it? What will you stand on? What hope do you have? Now, not only are we absent-minded about eternity, but we're actually, on an ongoing basis, encouraged to stop all this... um, eternity talk, to stop all this like eternity nonsense and focus on today. In fact, a Yale professor named Martin Hoglan wrote an article for the New York Times recently. And in this article, he said this, he said, an eternal salvation is not only unattainable, in other words, eternity is not only like doesn't exist, but if it did, it's also not desirable. And he says it this way, 
since it would eliminate the care and passion that animates our lives today. He says, what we do and what we love can matter to us only because we understand ourselves to be mortal. In other words, what he's essentially saying, what he's arguing here, is that living in light of a future beyond the grave is going to ruin our lives today. It's just going to ruin our outlook. It's going, to, it's going to ruin any sort of motivation to live any kind of meaningful life today. That he, what he says, it's when you operate under the assumption that you live and that you die, and then that's it. None of that eternity nonsense. When you just live and then you die, that's what really makes us effective humans, when we essentially live carpe diem, that you only live once. That if you're too heavenly-minded, you won't be any earthly good. If you've got your mind on eternity and you're focused on what's to come, then you're going to be negligent to the stuff that's right in front of you. And so this author suggests that we do away with this whole idea of eternity. Stop talking about eternity Embrace your mortality, and in his own words, he says, let the fear of living a life that matters before we die drive us. Let that anxiety of looming death, let that animate your life to live a meaningful life today. And I think for many of us, we have unknowingly subscribed to that way of thinking. Maybe it's not a creed that we we hold to. Maybe it's nothing that we've ever, you know, that's come out of our mouths, but I think for many of us, we're unknowingly living and abiding by that principle. That this is it, and we better make it count. Now, I find it encouraging that the ancient scriptures, penned some 2,000 years ago, prophetically anticipate this sort of rationale throughout every generation. And they remind us, the church, throughout every generation, that there's actually a better way to live now that Christ is risen. Because the resurrection of Jesus changes the narrative completely and, and opens us up to a whole new possibility. And I, I know uh, that I read this quote every Easter, but I think it bears repeating every Easter. It's by Leslie Newbigin. He said it this way. He said, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. You don't need to be an optimist. No one's asking you to be optimistic. I would never ask you to bet on humanity, ever. But... We also don't need to be pessimistic. Well, then what option is there? Well, the resurrection actually opens up a whole new possibility and opens up a very different motivation for life, and that category is called hope. See, the empty tomb means that there is hope for our today. The empty tomb means that there's hope for our tomorrow. And the empty tomb means that there's hope for our forever. Let's look first at hope for our today. See, what what Christians throughout history have discovered is that actually when you live in light of eternity, when you live in light of heaven, that is when you discover meaning and purpose today. That that idea, that hope of eternity actually animates our lives to live a meaningful life to a a greater degree. And there there are examples of this all throughout Christian history. We see the men and women that that fought to end slavery in the 1800s in, in England that were animated by this idea of an eternal God. We see this present in the civil rights movement in the 1900s in our, in our nation that were founded on these principles of an eternal God. That men and women that actually had their minds and their hearts set on eternity were the most faithful in the present. So how does eternity do this? Well, we begin to view life through a new lens. This, this is what the resurrection is offering us today is a new way to view our lives. 
Not, not just seeing things for the way they are and then trying to affect change, but actually beginning to view life in light of the way things will be, in light of what God is going to accomplish, in light of a new way of life that has been opened up to us through Jesus Christ. We begin to view the broken things in our lives, and we begin to view the broken things in our world with the confidence that God has promised that he is making all things new. All things new. See, hope means that we are living in the old world. But as we're living in the old world, we're living with the possibilities of the new. We're living into the old and worn out, broken systems, and yet the way of the new has broken in to our lives and opened up an entire new world for those who believe. Now, it's important to understand that the tomb of Jesus actually became the womb of a new creation. The tomb of Jesus was the womb of a new creation. A new life and new possibility was born this first Easter Sunday. See, the Bible tells us that through Adam's sin, all of creation was, was broken and, and death entered the story. But here in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is showing us that through the second Adam, now that's kind of strange language, but the Bible describes Jesus as this second Adam. So through the first Adam, brokenness and death enters into the world, but through this second Adam, Jesus, through his perfect obedience, through his sacrificial death, through his victorious resurrection, he has ushered in a new creation, an old, broken creation, and a new creation through Jesus. Now, I love the way that G.K. Chesterton describes the resurrection day. He put it this way. He said, On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they had hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. Did you guys catch that in our, in our liturgy earlier in our first uh, time of singing? John's gospel records that Mary comes to the grave. She sees these angelic hosts. She turns. She sees Jesus. She's the first to see the risen Jesus, and yet she doesn't recognize him. Who does, he, who does she think uh, he is? A gardener. A landscaper. I love this. How would you imagine Jesus' appearance on the day of the resurrection? I've always envisioned lights and glory and beaming and his, you know, his hair is blowing like a movie scene and a fan is on him and he's, I'm here, Mary. No, he looks like a landscaper. He looked like a gardener. Well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? That's kind of a weird note. I think what, what John is illustrating here is that Jesus was wasting no time in cultivating the garden as the second and greater Adam and really restoring the world to the paradise that it was intended to be. He is picking up immediately where Adam fell. Where Adam failed, Jesus steps in and continues that work of cultivating the garden as a faithful gardener, as a conquering landscaper. See, God's plan is not for us to escape this world to some sort of ethereal heaven where we're going to float around and bounce around on clouds and then God's going to take this earth and he's going to throw it away in, into the cosmic trash. 
Maybe that is the undesirable heaven that the New York Times author envisioned. But the Bible actually describes something entirely different. The Bible describes a renewed, physical, real earth where God promises to dwell with man, where hurt and hate and war, and this morning we, we, we woke up to the news of bombings in Sri Lanka and bombings and threat and murder and breakups and death and all the things that we hate in a world where all those things will be no more. The resurrection of Jesus brings with it the promise of a full restoration. Not partial, not 95%, not 99%, but a full restoration of God's good creation. And you see, with this outlook on eternity, the the kind that sees a future that does not yet exist, but we know is coming, well, then we're all the more motivated to engage our today with energy. This is what hope's about. See, hope means that we don't need to be driven by the anxiety of our own death, as if it all rests on what we can accomplish in one lifetime, so we better make it count. That's no way to live. Hope, biblical hope, is driven by the promise of a life and a future that actually rests on what Jesus has accomplished. Beautiful words that Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. And hope rests not only on what Jesus has accomplished, but what Jesus now is at at work bringing about in our lives and in our world. The Bible tells us that the very spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in our lives and at work in our world, giving us that same energy and power to be faithful to God and to live for God. The same spirit that conquered death now resides in our midst now animates our lives, now empowers us for faithfulness today, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Hope for today. Secondly, we see here is hope for tomorrow. Now, my family and I took some time away uh, this last summer for sabbatical, and we spent some time at a a house in, um, in Oregon outside of Portland, and there was this big bookshelf with a ton of books, and so I start looking through the bookshelf, and I start to see sort of the little hints of Christian faith. Sometimes you can, you know, look through someone's bookshelf, and you begin to see little hints of Christian faith, and, and then I came across a C.S. Lewis book, and then I was confident that they were believers. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm thumbing through the, this library, and I discover a journal, a little old journal, and it's tucked away. It's almost hidden, and I pull it out. Now, I have to warn you, I don't normally make it a habit of reading people's journals, that's creepy, but I, I felt like it was there on purpose. And so I opened it up, and I thumbed through it, and I realized that this journal is almost completely blank except for one entry. And it's this mother writing to her daughter. And she uses very affectionate words describing her love for her, and she's updating, uh, she's updating this daughter on the house and the family and her little siblings, and she, she shares that, um, that it was Palm Sunday and her little siblings were waving around the palm branches that they received at church. And so I'm reading through this journal, and I begin to wonder to myself, if this, if this woman who's writing the journal's kids are so small, she, the way she's describing these kids, they're very young. If they're this young, why wasn't this other daughter there? Was there a large age gap? 
did she move away? Did she, did she go away to college? Was she living at another parent's or that sort of thing? And then I thought to myself, why would she be writing to her in a journal? And the journal entry went on to explain how missed she was and how her family couldn't wait to see her in heaven. And it didn't explain how this, this daughter had died. And it didn't really give a lot of detail. But this mom writes to her in this entry and encourages her that her and the, fa- the rest of the family are keeping faith in Christ. And that they know somehow, even in the midst of this tragedy, that, that God is good and that he's present. And she's ensuring her of this. And she closes this journal in, in a simple statement. But the statement struck me, and, and, it, and it stuck with me since. And this is what she says. She simply said, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. That's a really simple statement. And if I were just to come up and, and just say that simply by itself, but, but, to hear, but to hear a mom who's lost her daughter, to be able to say that means something, doesn't it? And I know for a lot of us who are hurting and suffering and experiencing loss, it means something to say that. That statement right there, while it is very simple, is actually the anthem of the Christian faith. That is the anthem of our Christian life. Because Jesus lives, I can face tomorrow. Friend, because Jesus lives, you can face tomorrow. That's the hope that we have in the gospel. You see, the resurrection of Jesus does not ensure that we're going to be these like warriors of faith where we never doubt, we never struggle, we never hurt, we never suffer, we never face challenge in this life. But it does mean and it does ensure for us that we can face tomorrow because hope informs us that pain doesn't have the last word. Your suffering may last a season, And for some of us, your suffering, your loss, your wound, your hurt may may last an entire lifetime to your final breath. But it is not our forever. It's not our forever. Listen to the words of the scripture here in 1 Corinthians 15. But then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, I'm sorry, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, he's speaking about evil rulers. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ is on the throne, and he is ruling and reigning until the very day where Christ has put every single enemy under his feet. And namely, death. The Bible tells us that one day, On that day, every wrong will be made right. Every hurt will be healed. Every enemy of humanity will end. And that day is coming for all those who believe. That day is coming. Despite our circumstances, the resurrection means that our future is bright. And because of this, it gives us a tough-as-nails hope. That mom has tough-as-nails hope. And I've had so many conversations with you, and I have seen evidences of tough-as-nails hope in our church. Again, it's not these warriors of faith where we never struggle, we never doubt, but it's the kind of faith that by God's grace we continue to put one foot in front of the other. 
Some of us are sprinting, some of us are running, and some of us are barely crawling along. But because Christ is alive, we have hope for our tomorrow. Finally, we have hope for our forever. In order to conquer our fiercest enemy, death, Jesus would have to deal with the source of death. Death has a life source. And Christ would have to to cut off that life source in order to conquer death. And the Bible describes that life source of death as sin. And that's the very thing that Jesus did in his sacrificial and atoning death. On the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty, the price for our sin in our place. And on the cross, Jesus set us free from the grip and the tyranny of sin. And on the third day, he rose so that we could experience the reward of heaven, which is eternal life. To enjoy God and to enjoy one another and to enjoy his creation forever. As C.S. Lewis put it in the Chronicles of Narnia, when someone innocent willingly offers their lives for a traitor and stands in a traitor's place, that death itself starts working backwards. This is what Easter is all about. That because Christ has conquered the grave, death now is working backwards. It's been said before that the, the, the resurrection set in motion an irreversible tide. A tide that is moving through human history. You see, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave 2,000 years ago, the Bible actually describes it as just the first of many to come. It's just the beginning. The resurrection is not the end of the story. It, it winds up at the end of all the gospel accounts. It's at the end of the gospel accounts, but it's not the end of the story. The resurrection is actually just the beginning. When Christ conquered the grave, it was God making a declaration to humanity, I am just getting started. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. See, what we've gathered, whether you know it or not, what we gathered to celebrate today is just the first of many resurrections to come. Did you know that? See, many, many of us are maybe asking the question, well, who else is going to be raised from the dead like Christ? Well, according to the scriptures, what we just read, all those who belong to Christ. Who also will be raised with Christ? I'm planning on it. I'm banking on it. I'm putting my chips in on this one. The promise that the scripture makes here is huge. It's huge. I'm going to be honest with you. This is otherworldly language. This is incredible. This is an outlandish claim, but you got to admit, if it's true, it's worth at least listening to. Because the promise being made here is that because Christ rose from the grave, believers throughout all of time will one day be raised with him at his return. We We too will be raised to eternal life. When our spirit who has gone a way to be with God at death will be reunited 
with our bodies that our loved ones put in the ground. What a thought. Our spirits, our souls, reunited with our bodies. Thomas Boston was a theologian from the 17th and 18th century. And he wrote a book called Human Nature in, in Its Fourfold State. And I got to admit, it's the kind of book that you would expect from a theologian in the 17th century. It's like 400 pages. Yeah, just one of those. But there's this portion in it where he gets to talking about our resurrected bodies. And I don't know how else to explain it. His language changes. And joy begins to leap off the pages. And he sort of scripts this, this scene where he's imagining the spirit of a person once again meeting with their body at the day of Christ's return. And this is what the soul says to the body when they reunite. Oh, happy day. That's where we get that phrase, by the way. Oh, happy day in which I return to dwell in that blessed body. Now I shall be eternally knit to you. Death shall never make another separation between us. Arise then, my body, and come away. And then the body will say back to the soul, Oh, my soul, have we got together again after so long a separation? Have you come back to your old habitation, never more to leave? Oh, joyful meeting. The picture is that of friends that have been separated for years and years and years being reunited together. Friends that were separated by death embracing one another once again. And he explains that our, our resurrected bodies and what our resurrected bodies will be like, that our bodies, the bodies of believers will be raised incorruptible, which means that we're never gonna ache again. That neck pain, that joint, that ligament, that headache, all of it we will never experience again and death will be no more. That our bodies will be glorious bodies. That will, they, will, they will radiate with glory and splendor. That our, our bodies will be powerful and strong bodies. And that they will be spiritual bodies. Not less than physical, but spiritually alive. Imagine this scene with me. All of our wildest dreams of what our bodies could be. And we live in a very body-enamored culture. We are very body-enamored people. But our wildest dreams of what our bodies could be and what our bodies could accomplish, we will experience a thousand times over. What hope this brings in a broken and hurting world. I want to close with a story. Uh, in, in 1967, a, a young woman named Joni experienced a diving accident. I think she was at the age of 17. But it resulted in her becoming a quadriplegic. And as you can imagine for any person, she was struggling to make sense of her life and her future at this point. And she, she met Jesus and she experienced the hope of the gospel. And what she did was she made it her, her life mission to share that hope, to share the hope that she received. And I got to tell you, when a quadriplegic talks about the hope that comes in Jesus Christ, you listen. So listen. She says, I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone's spinal cord injured like me? 
or, or someone who is cerebral palsied or brain injured or who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope that this gives someone who is manic, depressive, or fill in the blank with any sort of mental health issue. She says, no other religion or philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, and new minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. This is the message of Easter, that men and women like us living in a broken world have received such incredible hope. Do you have this incredible hope? Do you have this incredible hope? Through Jesus, you can. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the pronouncement that God has conquered sin and death and that he is currently in our world overriding despair and he's overriding fear and he has given us a promise that he will return for his people to restore us completely. And the good news is that Jesus has called us to get in on this as well. Today, Jesus has welcomed us into this prospect of hope. Well, how? Well, Jesus says in John 6, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How do we get in on this? Behold Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And hold on in the hope that you too will be raised with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today.